Thank you for tuning in to WRGC 88.3 FM. It is a minute before 8 o'clock. Coming up in an hour of local programming from the Lake Country's home for National Public Radio and Georgia Public Broadcasting, Athens has long been considered one of the coolest college towns in the country. But how did it earn that distinction? Tonight, Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle explores the Athens scene with historian Grace Elizabeth Hale, author of the new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Stay tuned for the latest in our series of collaboration focusing on the history of Georgia in the South. That's coming up next. You're listening to WRGC 88.3 FM, a broadcast service of Georgia College. Georgia's public liberal arts university. Greetings, friends. I'm Mark Huddle, Associate Professor of History and the Director of Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies. Welcome to a very special global pandemic edition of the Center's ongoing collaboration with WRGC 88.3 FM, Milledgeville's National Public Radio Affiliate. In the words of the immortal Athens, Georgia rock and roll juggernaut REM, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. And I hope you guys do too. Of course, it's no accident that we start with the R.E.M. lyrics from their 1987 hit, It's the End of the World, which originally appeared on their album Document. The song reached as high as number 16 on the Billboard magazine singles chart in the summer of 1987. And then, 33 years later, the song re-entered the charts and climbed as high as number 22 on Billboard's digital song sales chart and number four on the Hot Rock Songs chart. Now that phenomenon is to some degree a measure of the collective gallows humor of our current time of troubles, but it's also a measure of the place that the great Athens band has carved out in American culture. The topic of our conversation today is Athens music history. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Outside of SEC country, Athens, Georgia is synonymous with musical and artistic creativity and innovation and not football. In the late 1970s and early 1980s, a small group of UGA students and Athens residents touched off a musical revolution that laid the foundations for the alternative rock scene of the 80s and 90s. Bands like the B-52s, Pylon, Love Tractor, and of course R.E.M. achieved national and international notoriety. The sleepy little southern college town of Athens was celebrated as the new American Bohemia and the wellspring of do-it-yourself culture. It also offered a kind of counter-narrative about the American South, one that to some degree rebutted old stereotypes of reactionary politics and racial conflict. Athens didn't just signal that a new South was possible. It created the perception that it was already happening. 
So how did it happen? Why Athens? Our guest today, Dr. Grace Elizabeth Hale, is the perfect person to answer these questions. Dr. Hale is the Commonwealth Professor of American Studies and History at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville and the author of a brand new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture, which was published just last month by the University of North Carolina Press. So finally, the Athens scene has the history that it so richly deserves. Cool Town is deeply researched and beautifully written. Dr. Hale deftly guides readers through a daunting and often complicated story, stripping away the myth and shining a bright light on this cultural moment. It's a remarkable work of scholarship, and it's a lot more than that. Grace Hale was also a participant in the Athens scene of the 1980s. She was a student at the University of Georgia, played in the local band Cordy Lawn, and she was a small business owner as the co-proprietor of The Downstairs, a restaurant and music and art space. In Cool Town, Hale pushes beyond historical analysis to bear witness and describe the thrill of being present at the creation of one of the most important cultural events of the late 20th century. Grace Hale, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me. Well, let me start by framing the question this way. In January 1961, Athens achieved a rather dubious international notoriety when the admission of Charlene Hunter and Hamilton Holmes as the first black students at the University of Georgia resulted in violence and rioting. And then 15 years or so later, Athens begins its rise as a truly countercultural enclave Uh, and takes its place as a center of creativity and musical innovation. How does that happen? Can you help us understand the context? I think that part of what's going on is a generation of Southerners, white and black, are coming of age in the aftermath of those civil rights battles. And certainly not that all the problems have been fixed, but they are coming of age in an era of integrating schools, and many people in the South wanting to chart a different course. Um, Of course, some people don't. But I think that that is part of what sets up the context for this flowering of experimentation and creativity, musical and otherwise, in Athens. One of the really little-known sort of parts of the story is that almost all the participants in the Athens music scene themselves experienced, you know, the integration of the schools. They lived through that, depending on their age, in high school, middle school, elementary school. They were part of that generation, the first generation, and in some places, one of the only generations uh, to experience that school integration and that attempt, at least for a while, to create a kind of different path for the region. And I think that, that does help set up the context. That's happening in a lot of places in the South. There are college towns like Athens in places like North Carolina, Tennessee, and the like. But something special comes out of it here. What are some of the factors that created the kind of infrastructure that this kind of artistic flowering would have required? 
as a historian, I always say, you know, there are many things we can explain. And then as a, as a human being, there are always those kinds of <laughs> things that are sort of beyond the explanation, um, you know, the right spark at the right moment, the right person. But, but as far as the kinds of things that, that we can analyze, I think one of the key things is the existence of a somewhat out, somewhat open, not not entirely out in a modern sense, but of a of a gay, queer, bisexual, you know, a, a non-heterosexual community in Athens. And that community is very tied to the art school. And in the 70s, people people looking for it can find it, even though it's not entirely out in the open. Many of the participants in that community are, some of them are art professors, some of them are former undergraduates or graduate students or current students or people who work at the university in some capacity. Many people told me that Lamar Dodd, who was the head of the art school there, in a pretty homophobic time period, was pretty open to hiring professors, you know, didn't have a kind of sense that 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 was a problem. And there was a community. And so I think that's one of the things that it doesn't make Athens entirely unique. There are clearly gay communities in other places, but it, it's a pretty big, robust community here tied to the art school, and that's one factor. I think another factor is the, the, the university itself and the fact that it draws people from all over the state and even in nearby states. Um, it's a non-elite institution at the time. It's actually pretty easy to get into. The tuition is very low, and it has this wealth of resources. Because there's an art school, because there's a music school, there are resources. There are art studios in which people can create with each other that are really open and very easy to use and access, uh, that you can be in the building 24 hours a day, for example, in the big open art studios. The grad students are working there, the undergrads. The library is accessible even to non-students. There are ways in which you can get a library card even if you're not enrolled. Uh, you can use the materials. You can watch films in the library. You can listen to music in the library. All the things we take for granted with the Internet, but which were extremely difficult to access at the time. It was very hard to access cultural resources of other time periods and places. And all of these things are available in Athens. All these young people are here. You know, of some of the things I'm saying, you could say these things are true of any college town where there's a big public university, and I think that that's true. Um, and so then I think you'd have to talk about some of the particular individuals that are here in, in that period. Well, actually, that was the perfect segue into my next question because, you know, it's people that make the culture and personalities play such a critical role. Uh, tell us tell us a little bit about Jeremy Ayers. He would be the first person you'd have to talk to. As a younger man, he went by the name Jerry. He grew up in Athens. His father was hired at the university after World War II, I believe, first to be a chaplain, and then he helped found the Department of Religion at Georgia and I was a longtime member of the faculty. So Jerry grew up in Athens, went to high school in Athens. Sometime after high school, as many people did in those days, um, he had you know creative ambitions. He wanted to get out of his small town, and he did that thing that people did before places like Athens helped them imagine another route, and that was he moved to New York City. And in the city, he became involved in drag acts. He you know got to know other drag queens in the city. 
He became a part of Andy Warhol's factory, um, and for a while he was one of Warhol's superstars. He went by the name Silva Finn. He was friends with a lot of the more famous superstars and drag queens. He wrote a column for Interview Magazine, for example. He was in a production put on by Jackie Curtis. He was in an ad in French Vogue. You know, he did all kinds of exciting things. Andy Warhol took pictures of him. And during this time period, two of his much younger friends from Athens took the bus up to see him in New York City. And then they, too, uh, hung out with him and the other drag queens, and they learned to go to secondhand stores and buy materials and dress up and, and perform. And they brought that spirit back with them to Athens. And those two guys were Keith Strickland and Ricky Wilson. And so that whole sort of conduit, um, the kind of traveling of the idea of creating a kind of bohemian underground really came directly from that experience in New York that Jerry had and that he brought Keith and Ricky into. And many people told me that Ricky really had the idea that he wanted to create some, you know, Athens version of that back home. Jeremy Ayers kind of fascinates me because he seems to have been this indispensable personality, but who also kind of shuns the limelight. He is not the kind of public figure who seemed to have kind of driven this scene. Rather, he's behind the scenes, really influencing a lot of interesting people. You you mentioned both Keith and Ricky. I mean, how would you assess Ayers' role then, simply as a kind of tastemaker? He seems to have empowered a great many people. I think you could think of him as a mentor and a friend, obviously. He's Mm -hmm. also a friend to many people, but he seems to have this incredible ability to inspire other people and Mentor might be n- not quite the right word because it's it's not so much that he's telling them what to do, but somehow through getting to know him, they they become aware of other options, other ways to be, other other possibilities. He moves back to Athens after Warhol sort of turns away from his interest in the drag queens and goes through that period of being into sort of high society and celebrities and um, really kind of turns his back on to his interest in the downtown art scene and the Velvet Underground and all of that. And so at some point after that, Jerry moves back to Athens and just immediately falls in with old friends like Keith and Ricky and, you know, new friends that he makes like Kate Pearson and others. And they really begin to create this kind of, a kind of series of events and activities, a bohemian kind of activities in Athens. And it just seems like many, many people who come into contact with him are inspired by his sort of insistence on living in the present, on thinking about the art of everyday life, how to sort of think about yourself as art and your very personhood as your art. He has this kind of way of being that is just really inspiring. I mean, I think another thing that's interesting about him is the way that he cultivates a kind of hanging back, a kind of mystery, in some ways characteristics that people might traditionally gender feminine. And I think that's really interesting to people that he's this really handsome man, but he has a kind of quiet sort of holding back way of being in the world that is at least one traditional sort of female identity. But he's just a really inspiring person and wave after wave 
of Athens Bohemians and musicians are inspired by him. Uh, you know, it's not just Keith and Ricky, it's Michael Stipe, it's, you know, Mark Klein from Love Tractor, and later on it's people like Ben Reynolds and Brant Slay who formed the Chickasaw Mud Puppies, Jim McKay who plays with them a bit but goes on to be a really important filmmaker. I mean, you could go on and on, but he seems to have this effect on many, many people over the years. You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Grace Elizabeth Hale about Hale's new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Stay tuned because there's more in store. Is that you, baby? Something to tell you. Oh, what? I want to see you tonight. I want you to walk in the door. Yeah, what are the issues that you wrestle with in the book has to do with issues of gender fluidity and sexuality at a very specific moment in American history and in the history of the American South. How do you think those issues, besides the kind of performative aspects, it might have affected the early uh, evolution of the scene there? I think about this a lot because I live with two 20-year-olds and they really have a very different kind of relationship to ideas about gender and sexuality and fluidity. And it seems to me that in the last 10, 15 years, there's been a kind of shift in thinking towards the idea of creating more categories, creating many sorts of ways in which people can imagine their gender and sexuality outside of traditional what academics would call cisgender kinds of relationships. And I think a lot about how in Athens in the 70s and 80s, people had a very different vision of what it would mean to be free of those boundaries, that they thought about the fact that they would live outside the categories or not answer the questions as a way to have greater freedom rather than actually thinking about creating new categories. This isn't to say one way or the other is better, but I think it's hard to see the kind of radicalism of this earlier model given the way the dominant kind of models that we think of for expanding those kinds of freedoms today. So somebody like Jeremy Ayers, who wants to kind of live outside of the traditional boxes of man, woman, gay, straight, it's hard to kind of categorize in terms of our own kind of moment. But I think that this fluidity, this sort of attempt to throw off in a very self-consciously kind of bohemian way, the strictures of middle-class culture is really important to understanding what's going on in Athens. And that creates this kind of space where people, you know, later on are coming in and then having the space to imagine and create these new categories. But it would be hard to go from one to the other. There has to be this kind of space of openness and fluidity between them. And I think that's a really radical thing. You know, the critique of that is there were some people in the scene like Mark Klein who were very much out in in our kind of modern sense of the word. And I think you can make a critique of 
this kind of fluidity that, that characterizes much of what's going on where people don't have to choose a category, doesn't that provide a way for a fair number of people to kind of play around in their youth and then end up in a kind of conventional sexual and gender sort of identity later on, i.e. then get married and, you know, have a conventional middle-class family. And I think that's obviously a fair critique. But at the same time, I think that it misses the ways in which this kind of fluid space is just really key to what happens in Athens. It's really the kind of almost taproot of creativity. It's the space in which so much creativity is happening and people are able to imagine all kinds of distinctions, all kinds of categories being erased or being uh, transgressed through this kind of model of drag play, of queerness, of, you know, not being kind of straight, conventionally gendered people. Well, I guess one of the things that makes me think about is that, you know, when you read a lot of the early interviews with the musicians, especially musicians in the B-52s, uh, early REM interviews, they talk about one of the reasons Athens is so special is that it is isolated from the kind of major currents of American culture at that time, that it creates a space where people can really create based on their own definitions of what they think that art is. But I think something that the heirs story it tells us is that the the idea of isolation is is somewhat of a myth that that Athens even in its earliest stages always seems to be connected in some way to a broader sense of bohemia whether it's in New York or or other parts of the world what is it about the idea of kind of mythologized sense of isolation becomes such a major part of the story I think much of that isolationness is imposed on Athens on the scene in the early days from people outside of Athens. It, it is the kind of story that underground music critics writing for the Village Voice or writing for New York Rocker, it's their myth of Athens. They have no experience of being in a small town in the South. They have all kinds of stereotypes of what people might be like in those kinds of places. They see Athens as completely isolated, and, it, and absolutely it is isolated compared to living in Hoboken or living in um, the East Village. Yes, absolutely, it's, it's isolated, but there always are people that are going back and forth, particularly to New York. There, there are always art students, especially, but some other people as well, people who are graduating from the art school who then moved to New York City. There are art professors that have lived in New York City and then come down to teach at the university. There are people like Jeremy who've lived in New York. So there is always a little bit of a back and forth between the two places. And as I said, I think that the story about Athens is isolated is the story of the music critic somebody like Tom Carson or somebody like Laura Levine, the photographer, somebody coming from New York to Athens, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, it does. You know, it's, it's hard to get to, as a fan, you know, early article about Athens said, 19 hours from New York. It's a long way from New York City. It, you can't really fly there. You can't get there except for in a, on a you know, long drive in a car or a bus. You know, even today, Athens is isolated. The airport's pretty much non-existent. The Atlanta airport's an hour and a half, two hours away. There's no major interstate near Athens. I mean, it truly is isolated in certain ways, but it's never as isolated from not only contact of people going back and forth, but also people 
understanding what's going on elsewhere in the world, following stories of what's going on in the music world and the art world in New York, you know, thinking about what's happening in California. You know, people are not ignorant. I think part of it is a kind of stereotype, if that makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> and, and part of it is, what do you mean by isolated? But the part that's incorrect is the sense that people in Athens don't know what's going on in other places or are somehow, you know, idiot savants or, you know, <laughs> somehow sprung up, you know, out of the red clay with no, nothing from anywhere else influencing in them. Well, I guess I'm always intrigued by the tensions that inevitably arise in these sort of cultural happenings. You've got bands like uh, the B-52s. The B-52s are really only in Athens for a, a relatively short time. I mean, they make their way to New York pretty quickly. But on the other side of it, you've got a band like Pylon that almost jealously guards their sense of Athens-ness, if that's even a word, that are more in conflict, I think, with the marketplace to yeah. some degree. And that that tension seems to play out over the long history of, of the scene itself. Um, and, and probably you know, the, the most interesting example of that would be a band like R.E.M. That band always seemed to have an agenda beyond just the art making that was going on within the Athens Clark County area. The thing about the B-52s that people forget is that the people in the B-52s lived in Athens a long time. They right. just didn't live in Athens a long time after they became a band with a record out. So, you know, Ricky Wilson, Keith Strickland, and Cindy Wilson are all from Athens. Sure. <laughs> they, they grew up in Athens. I mean, to, you know, I think Keith Strickland moved into town from this countryside outside of Athens when his parents took over running the, the bus station. But, it, you know, they grew up in the area. And um, Fred Schneider came down, um, I believe it was the early 70s, to study forestry, of all things, at the University of Georgia. And uh, he had been in town a long time. Uh, Kate Pearson uh, probably probably had been there the shortest period of time, but she'd been there several years, having moved there with she was then married, uh, lived in a lived in a small place outside of town, had been a folk singer, uh, was kind of part of that sort of folk revivalist back to the land kind of style of being a hippie that was that was part of her kind of roots. Um, so they had been in Athens a long time. Uh, they had deep roots there, many friends there. And in part, I think it's interesting and very ironic that what they started didn't happen fast enough for them to stay in town, right? So when, when they're starting to get played and starting to be really the darlings of the New York underground scene, when they want to play in Athens, they have to talk the folk club, the last resort, into letting them play. They, they literally have to rent out the Georgia Theater themselves, pay for it themselves to put on a show for A&R people from record companies to see them play, or they have to go to Atlanta and arrange a show so A&R people can hear them play. There isn't that much infrastructure a few years later, but it's enough, right? It's enough to make things go. There isn't any of that. They are what inspires it, but it doesn't happen fast enough for them to take advantage of it. So I think that's kind of an interesting uh, irony of the story. People always sort of say, they moved away, you know, what do they do? But it's like, they really did everything. <laughs> you know? right. They were there a long time before they moved, and they they nurtured this world. I mean, Keith and Ricky and Jerry Ayers and some of their friends were really at the center of a small sort of group of people that were the, 
the nucleus of what we might think of as Bohemian Athens. So I think that's important to state. But obviously, after the B-52s happen, that and because they become really underground famous in New York pretty quickly and then sign a major record deal, that makes other people imagine they can do it, that they too can start a band. And, and, And in that imagining, I think the underground fame in New York is more important than the major deal, if that makes sense. But the fact that they came out of Athens and then people in New York fell in love with them, that that's part of what inspires other bands to think we, we might be able to do this too. But but what comes in the wake of the B-52s makes it possible for other bands to stay in town. They're, they're begin to be clubs, you know, they're, the Tyrones begins to book these, they're called new music bands at the time. They don't even really have a name for it. Um, and the 40 watt opens. Um, people develop this kind of circuit of house parties. And so there's just just more of a chance for people to be in town, for a band like Pylon to stay in town because of what the B-52s did. So I feel like it's important to kind of say that about about that early history. Um, I don't think it's, it's just about whether you want the money or you don't want the money. The B-52s are coming along at a time period when there really isn't this kind of booming underground and the independent music labels and the new scenes that are starting. They're right at the forefront of that. And if you think about all of those post-punk bands that were making it in downtown New York, they, they almost all signed with major labels. I mean, think about it. Patti Smith, Blondie, The Talking Heads. I mean, this kind of idea of the independent record labels and that whole kind of alternative, you know, pathway isn't really made yet. <laughs> so mm-hmm. so um, I just think it's important to say that about the B-52s. You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Grace Elizabeth Hale about Hale's new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. Stay tuned. I guess one of the things I learned from the book that I didn't really know that much about was that there was a significant amount of pushback locally against REM when they began to become successful. And based on what you've kind of just described, you know, REM is a band that seems to have made no secret of the fact that they wanted to tour, they wanted to be successful. They they wanted to take their art to a broader audience. And yet when they started to do that, there seems to have been some resistance to that within the local scene itself. 
Well, you know, through their first few years, they have many twists and turns in terms of their relationship with Athens. And it's really interesting to find that, you know, even by the mid to late 80s, they seem to love Athens and Athens seems to love them. But through the early years, there, there are all kinds of twists and turns. I mean, part of it is that from the very start, from their very first show at the church and their first shows at Tyrone's, they're playing a style that really takes a lot from garage rock, from collections like the Nuggets collection that circulates in the 70s. People sort of reissue these old garage rock singles and things like that, uh, or songs from these bands that no one's heard of. Um, You know, and they're really influenced by that sound, and they've got a sound that makes a lot of people who don't have access to streaming music like we do. They can't pick up a Spotify or some other, you know, Apple Music service and listen to anything that's ever been recorded. And a lot of people think all of their songs are cover songs, their first few gigs, even when they're not. I mean, they they may not be very good original songs, but they are original songs, (laughs) but they sound familiar to people. And so, so people have this idea that they're playing cover songs. And so for the art school contingent, um, and of course, Michael Stipe is an art student, but for some people in the art school contingent, this sort of violates the idea of that an artist has to be original, that they have to be doing their own thing. So they get really unfairly tarred with this brush of being a cover band when that's not entirely fair. They just have a sound that people somehow think they've heard before. But it's not entirely fair also because they're trying to have a sound that's not like Pylon that's not like the other bands, like the Tone Tones that are a short-lived band, that they're trying to carve out a, a new space, if that makes sense, um, as they develop, you know, that the same night they play, the side effects play, they've got a kind of what we'd later call like a kind of nerdy new wave sound. They're, they're trying to, all these bands are trying to have a different sound. Uh, so they get pretty quickly tarred with this kind of, they're, they're too accessible, they're not original. Um, and it's not, it's not really entirely fair. Um, the other thing that happens is when they start playing Tyrone's, pe- people love it. And Tyrone's is not like a scene clubhouse kind of a space like the 40 watt is going to be when it opens. It has other kinds of music on other nights. People go there just to drink. And so REM develops a pretty big audience pretty quickly. And it's not all art students. It's also some, oh, heaven forbid, fraternity guys, <laughs> sorority girls, and you know, just regular students. And so that sort of adds to this kind of sense that they're not artsy enough, that they're not original enough. And that kind of continues for their first year or two. Um, At the same time, you know, they're good friends with, they're sharing a practice space with people in Love Tractor and in Side Effects. Bill Berry's drumming for Love Tractor for a while and for R.E.M. They're all friends. They all, like, hang out with the same people. They date the same people, you know. So it's it's an interesting thing. There's a way in which there's certain kind of bohemian snobbery against them, and yet they're very much part of the community, if that makes sense. The other kind of round of antagonism between REM and Athens happens when they get signed to IRS and they put out Chronic Town and um, especially the time of Chronic Town, but also the time of Murmur. It's a time when Athens is just kind of all of a sudden really big um, in, undergr- in the underground music world. Um, Pylon has 
stuff out. Love Tractor has stuff out. The B-52s are still doing really well. There's this kind of sense of Athens as this hot spot. And um, the guys in REM and also their record label really feel like there's going to be this backlash against REM. And so you can find these amazing interviews where Pete Buck and Michael Stipe are saying, oh my gosh, Athens, you know, whatever. We're just a band who happens to live there. You know, we don't sound anything like these other bands. It's not that great a place. Um, they're really wonderful, wonderful <laughs> quotes of this moment where they're trying to say, forget it, you know, we don't want to be associated with this place. Of course, that doesn't actually happen. That Athens backlash doesn't happen. And by the time they're out there, especially after a few months of Murmur being out, that seems to disappear. So that's part of it. I think the other part of your question was about they always intended for their music to go beyond Athens. I think the thing that's really, really interesting about R.E.M. is the way the four different guys in the band fit together and their talents fit together and their visions fit together and also the way in which they very much grow out of this Athens scene and they grow along with it. It grows as they grow. And so they never, at least until, I guess, later in their career, but they never really outgrow Athens because it's growing and they're growing and it, it, it all works. But... I do think they are different in the sense in the sense that somebody like um well Bill Barry and Mike Mills from Macon, you know, Bill Barry works for Paragon, a booking agency associated with um Capricorn Records and the Southern Rock bands and he has this kind of experience in the music business and in that job he gets to know Ian Copeland uh, for a while Ian Copeland is his boss at Paragon. Um, of course, Ian Copeland is related to the Copeland and the police and the other Copeland brother who runs IRS records. And so Bill Berry has some some serious inside the music industry, you know, connections. Mike Mills and, and Bill like jam with Ian Copeland and Macon. Um, somebody's even said the jamming happens in a garage, you know, so yeah. there, is, there is this history. I mean, this is the reason REM is what, about six months old, and they open for the police at the Fox? I mean, maybe they're not even six months old. Um, it's, it's a very early gig for them. So they do have these kinds of connections, and both Mike and Bill Berry have real deep musical training and talent. You know, they've, they've played multiple instruments. They've played in various high school bands and ensembles. They're not the Athens art school amateurs, right? They've got They've got training. They've got. They can probably tell you about key signatures, right? So they, That's right. They. Uh, so Bill knows about the industry. Both of them. Mike Mills's mother's a music teacher, so they they know a lot about music, um, and I think that also is part of why they don't 100% sync up with this kind of art school aftermath of punk. Anybody can do it. Pick up an instrument and play. Make your own music. You know, they don't completely fit in with that with that pattern, but they take enough of that, you know, they take some of that with them, certainly uh, more on the Michael Stipe, Pete Buck side. You know, one of the things that really impressed me is that there is an effort that they make to push out of Athens in the earliest days and drive into Tennessee and play some small bar. There seems to have been uh, a pipeline to places like New York City for some of the early bands. You know, they wouldn't stop between Athens and 
NYC, you know, they would drive all the way up there, play in New York and come home. Whereas REM looks as if they are playing everywhere. And, you know, you mentioned, I think in the book, you know, Michael Azarad's book, Our Band Could Be Your Life. You know, there's that period in the late 70s and early 80s where the infrastructure of alternative music is being built. And yeah. that takes heavy lifting. You know, that takes somebody who's willing to do the work. And REM yeah. is on the road all the time. It's a real out-of-the-gate sense of professionalism that kind of yeah. puts them at odds with some of, of the younger bands that are, are playing around in the Athens scene in that period. Yeah. I know, you know, I, I don't deny that there's some professionalism there, but I think there's also a huge amount of romanticism of a kind of on-the-road adventure, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> a, right. You know, Pete Buck has talked about this. Like, yeah. you know, there's a, this kind of idea of, of a bunch of guys that are really good friends that are on the road seeing America together. So, yeah, there's some professionalism in there, but but there's also a desire to make money from their music and you can only you can play in Athens a lot, but you can't play every night. So there's that part of it. Um, there's also this kind of, like I said, Pete Buck's kind of fascination with the beatnik writers and let's get out there and see the breadth of the country. Um, all of that's coming together. Um, I don't think it's just professionalism, but but I think the result of it is that REM, I mean, and the other bands will say this, people from Pylon will say this, and people from other bands will say this, we would leave here and we might play Atlanta, we might play, I mean, early on, people didn't even play Atlanta, but but then they could play Atlanta, 688 opened and other places, then they might play D.C., and the next stop would be New York, and that REM would play anywhere, anytime, every little bump in the road, every, you know, hot dog stand and pizza parlor and disco that had new wave night anywhere they could go. And they, they did that. And it, it absolutely was hard work. And it not only made them a better band, but it also built that infrastructure you're talking about. And I think they get some credit from that. Certainly people have written about it, perhaps not enough credit. I mean, the thing that I find that's the greatest irony is that the bohemian artsy Athens that had a little bit of a thing against them. Nobody was a more important ambassador for Athens as that place and that idea of a kind of alternative bohemian scene than REM. They're the people who spread that idea to every little spot in the road, to places like Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're the people that, that took that out there. Um, Augusta, Georgia, you know, they, they helped people in all those places, imagine that world. It's interesting that you put it that way. I grew up in Ohio. I moved to Washington, D.C. in 1983. I think it probably would have been the winter of 1984. I get a call from my brother who's in college in Ohio, and he says, if you get a chance, you've got to go see REM. And I was aware of REM. I I had murmur at the time, but he's like, no, you've, you've got to go see them. And Almost yeah. on cue, REM was playing like a couple weeks later at the old Ontario Theater. He was absolutely right. It was a mind-blowing experience um, and a physically devastating one because they were so loud that ceiling tiles were falling into the crowd as they played. You know, a few years after that, then the Athens Inside Out documentary starts making the rounds. And people where I was living at the time, again, I was still in the D.C. area, people would wrestle over that VHS tape at the video store when it would come in. People would would put their names on a list and wait for months to get their hands on it. What do you think the importance 
of that particular documentary was in the creation of this bohemian perception of the world that that so many people were carrying around about Athens in that period? I think that film is really important. I mean, it does it does what REM does for the music and for the you know the chance people have to just meet a few people from that place. But it recreates the whole world. It it recreates a certain feel of it. I mean, it's it's certainly one particular vision of that world, and certainly not the whole of it. But it does a huge amount of of work doing that. I think the fact that it's a little bit hard to get to, at least initially, you know, they play it on MTV sometimes. Um, it has a limited screening, and then you can later get that really, you know, get hold of the, the bad VHS tape yep. or later DVD. But it's not it's not the easiest thing to get hold of. I think that kind of adds to the romance and the appeal. Um, and people have this way of finding the film, and it does so much of that work. Um, but, of course, the film doesn't come out till 87. So that work that REM is doing in the early 80s, the film then does later. And, and I think most interestingly... The film is, to some degree, I mean, it's not made by Jeremy Ayers, um, and that is the period when he's changing his name from Jerry to Jeremy, but it is, it is to some degree, um, Jeremy's vision. You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Grace Elizabeth Hale about Hale's new book, Cool Town, How Athens, Georgia Launched Alternative Music and Changed American Culture. One of the things that makes Cool Town such a wonderful book is that it isn't often that we get to see one of our peers step into the story themselves. Some of the best writing in this book is description of your own experiences growing up as the Athens scene is growing up as well. How difficult was that to blend your own memoir into a serious work of of history? Uh, Terrifying. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to to be serious, uh, you know, very hard. I mean, you you also are a historian. We're not trained to do that. And it was hard to, to get the balance right. It was hard to think about writing a story that in the early years of the story I'm telling, I, I'm not part of the scene, and I, I don't even live in Athens in the earliest part. And then later on, I actually began to be a part of the story, and I, and I know these people, and I've seen these bands, and, and, it's, and I have a kind of direct experience of things. And so the tone had to kind of shift over the course of the book. I also really wanted to tell the story. Um, you know, I'm a participant, but I'm not a central character by any means. Um, and I wanted to get that tone right. I didn't want it to be too much of a memoir, like like it was a story of me in the scene, because it isn't. I'm trying to write the story of the Athens scene, and so there were some tricky things there. You know how 
how to get the tone right in terms of the personal voice, how to have the book sort of shift over time and the narrative structure, when to bring in my own experiences. But at the same time, since I did see many of these bands, since I saw the Barbecue Killers play, since I saw OOK play, I saw REM play on Legion Field, I can't really write about that and pretend like I wasn't there. So I, I think that was a challenge in terms of the writing and also in terms of the tone that I wanted to have as a historian. But I felt like the risk was going to be worth it. So I hope it was. You know, we, in our professional writing, are always deploying certain methodologies or frameworks of analysis or theoretical constructs that are going to help us to make our argument in a sense, you're, you're breaking the fourth plane. And that's, that's fascinating to me. It doesn't detract, it, it enhances, and it draws out some of the most important themes of historian-like work that you're doing. So yeah. you know, kudos for that. You know, well, thanks. I mean, what, one thing that really helped is that, you know, a lot of time has gone by. And so I think that helped me I really spent a lot of time checking everybody's memories against the written record as it existed. Um, and especially, uh, there's certain periods, especially when the red and black is really good at, at reporting who's playing and what's going on. And then there are other publications like Flagpole or Tasty World and other kinds of sources that I could use that could give me dates and chronologies and time. And I checked my own memories just like I checked everyone else's. I also did a lot of interviews with people where I actually understood the timeline of their band or, or what they were doing better than they did because I had just spent the last week reading about it in, in the Red and Blacks, for example. <laughs> so, and, and they weren't actually reading eight, 1980s Red and Blacks. So, <laughs> so I had that kind of humility in the sense that, you know, I, I, I forgot things about my life too, right? Right, that's right. <laughs> so, so you did too. So, so the distance certainly helped, if that makes sense. Um, the, you know, and and thinking about how doing so many oral history interviews and thinking about memory and how it how it works for everyone in terms of these kinds of like specifics, but also thinking about how wonderful it is to talk to people and you get that kind of wonderful sort of story or the what something felt like in that moment or the texture or the feel of it. And I think those those personal stories really, really bring writing alive. And I got that from other people when I interviewed them. And so I, that also gave me a sort of understanding of how to use my own stories, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Um, so all of that came together. And I, I also really had forgotten a lot of things about what I was like back then. I mean, you know, it's a long time ago. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so that was kind of fun and humbling and, and, you know, poignant at times. You know, I would discover sources like I didn't know I had written a piece for the flagpole where I critiqued the Peace Corps. I totally forgot <laughs> that, I ever, that I ever wrote, you know, things like anti-war pieces for, for, for the very early flagpole. So there were those kind of moments, like, like here, you know, finding old film footage and then hearing yourself talk <laughs> and not recognizing your voice. Wow. So that kind of helped me to sort of almost see myself as a character sure. and not see it as so personal. Okay. Well, we are, we're coming up on time, but I have one last question for you. Um, you know, you've done such a wonderful job showing us how 
this flowering of of music and art uh, in Athens comes to life. Uh, how do scenes like Athens die? Like what what ultimately you know chokes off that creativity and sends a community in a different direction? This is a hard question for me to answer because I've sort of steadfastly resisted many people that I love, some of whom were readers of this manuscript, both officially readers and also friends and colleagues that read it for me, and even editors who wanted this to be a kind of rise and fall arc. And I resisted that very, very much. And I don't think that the Athens scene ends, and I don't don't, and I also don't think it's for someone who doesn't live there to say whether it is or isn't going. You know, it, it has to be someone who has a kind of direct experience of what is there. So I actually, you know, it's hard for me to say what makes a scene end because the one that I'm the most familiar with, I don't think has ended. Yes. So I, I do think many of us have a tendency to see if we're involved in something, we, we see the arc of it as existing during the time period when it was great for us. It's a human tendency. And I found this time and time again when I interviewed people about the Athens scene, people that were older thought the scene was over in 1982, people <laughs> that were, you know, 83 for sure when Pylon quit the first time. Other people thought, oh, my God, it was 85. You know, name your year. And somebody's got that, that narrative. So I spent a lot of time thinking about why people want to narrate the development of a scene that way and why that's wrong, which has left me completely unprepared sure. to answer well, no, your I, question. But but one thing I would speculate is that part of it is, you know, you just don't have the right mix of people. I mean, mm-hmm. that is the kind of unquantifiable part of it. Is well, how do you just have that right mix of people? Well, let me explain why I, why I asked the question, though, because I, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about the way you bring your story to an end, and this is not the specific ending, but, but you know, you, you take it up to the campaign and election of uh, Gwen O'Looney. She's this figure with connections to the art world and to the scene, but I believe she's a social worker by trade, but the scene essentially ends up in the halls of power, such as they are in in Athens, Clark County. And I thought that was really interesting in a, in a, in a really good way of knowing where to stop the narrative. Yeah. But what happens after Gwen O'Looney, of course, is really interesting. And we, you know, Nancy, yeah. Nancy Denson gets elected and she turns the city over to the developers and the big yeah. corporate chains move into the downtown for the first time. Old spaces. Not the first time. Well, I but I, you. okay, well, well, <laughs> you know, but when Urban Outfitters makes their move, move into the downtown, you should, I mean, there were protests. There were, you know, people, yeah. people were freaking out. Um, you know, whole neighborhoods around the downtown start to go away. There's a, a, a shift, a, a really dramatic shift. I'm not saying that the Athens scene is dead. I, there's great bands yeah, yeah. all the time. But the city is very different now than, yeah. than it was I- even at the end of, of, of your book. So that's really it's what could pro- Well, that's I totally agree with that. <laughs> you know, I totally agree with that. <laughs> But things change, cities change, yeah. and so I was really interested in the way that you chose that particular period to stop your story. It was very effective. I, I, I enjoyed it very much. But also I would say in that moment, you're talking about you still have this 
flowering of a whole other side of bands. I mean, you have all those Element Six bands yeah. that are just incredible. That are you know that that that's really past my time. And you know, some of their music I didn't even know about till I was writing this book. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make it into the book. But and then even after those bands, you have you know the Drive-By Truckers and their glory years that's in right. Athens and well, so but, into the into the 21st century. So it, even as that change is happening and and it does make me cry to see all of those apartments and condos where the old warehouse district used to be and you know yet all these incredible things are still were still happening. So. Oh and you know now you see hip hop downtown. So you know yeah. you're seeing a playing out of the racial issues that your book also describes. Yeah, and I think that's it's a really incredible development and in no way do I want to paint a perfectly rosy picture of things going perfect on every front but right. it, it is interesting to see that more integration you know having a sort of wider range of sounds that are considered part of alternative music in Athens and also with that having more integration I mean that that's just really an interesting development all right well Grace Hale thank you so much for speaking with us today we really appreciate it well thanks for having me on I've lived in Athens, Georgia, off and on over the past 25 years. It is a city I love, and one of the reasons for my affection is the remarkable history of music making and cultural production. The story that Grace Hale tells in Cool Town is important, and the accomplishments of the people who made that history should be a source of pride to all of us. But I think one of the things that makes the story resonate is that that creative outpouring was a reaction to the homogenization of art and music and culture in the 1970s and 80s. It's the story of a group of young people who decided to push back against the tide of conformity and do their own thing. The rightness of their impulse can be measured in the ways that they managed to connect with people all over the world. They created the template. They provided the model for a new kind of freedom. We are currently experiencing a world in quarantine. Prior to this crisis, we were all trapped in the monoculture of social media stamped and branded like products on a production line. Suddenly the things and people that we took for granted are deemed essential. That means they, we, aren't just cogs in the machine. It means without them the machine won't work. I'm not sure quite what that means yet, but I know that our time in isolation can afford us the space to rethink what freedom really means. We can spend time with the people we love. We can imagine a world where self-expression matters. We can even make things. 
and eight. Why not let that incredible Athens music be the soundtrack as we get busy remaking our worlds? Thanks a lot for listening. I hope you and your loved ones are safe and sound. My name is Mark Huddle, and I'll see you next time.